0: hello hello welcome to inside out the show about badass millennials living out their dreams and how they got there i'm your host Z. thank you so much for tuning in today we've got a most stellar guest pun intended and she will not disappoint i actually thought long and hard about whether to air this episode first On the one hand, it's a no-brainer because Sarah is an amazing scientist who's discovered multiple planets, she's spoken around the world about it, and she's one of the best examples of someone who has built her life and career from the inside out. She is the person that introduced me to therapy um, and also Peep Sushi and Microsoft Paint memes, so she's a cool gal all around. Part of Sarah's story, though, is that she in part became a public figure for coming forward as a named complainant in a sexual harassment case, which took a lot of courage on Sarah's part, and I'm so grateful for her coming on the podcast to tell her story. I know this is a sensitive topic for a lot of people personally, and it's also become a politically charged topic in recent years. Um, So the last thing I want to do is be divisive. But after thinking a lot about it, I realized that one we're all adults here or most of us anyway and power dynamics are a huge part of life and work that we should be able to look at directly and two the way that sarah approached the situation and her career at large is really worth hearing out she worked hard for so many years to build up her reputation as a scientist so that when it came time to make a decision about speaking out she could really think carefully about whether, and how to use her voice. Also, I should mention that we don't talk in detail about the case itself, so if you'd like to know more, you can Google Sarah's name to learn more. Anyway, I'll let Sarah tell you her story. I do want to say also that Sarah is one of the most kind-hearted and humble people I know, and that shines through in a few moments when you'll hear her laugh as I try to introduce her with some pomp and circumstance. Enjoy the show. So today's guest is Sarah Ballard. She is an
1: icon. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Mm -hmm. I'm going to look away.
0: All right, all right. Here's a snippet from Sarah Ballard's Wikipedia page, because, yes, she has a Wikipedia page. She's currently a professor of astronomy at the University of Florida. Sarah Ballard took part in the discovery of four exoplanets in the Kepler spacecraft mission. She's been a Taurus Fellow at MIT She's been a L'Oreal Fellow and a NASA Carl Sagan Fellow. She's also been recognized by popular media like People Magazine for coming forward with her story. Okay, Sarah and I were roommates at the Granite Palace, our humble abode in Somerville, Massachusetts. I got to live with Sarah while she was doing her postdoc at MIT, while she was flying around the world giving conferences, and I got to witness her journey to becoming a professor, aka PSB.
1: Yes! Yes! Yes. Welcome (laughs) to the podcast, Sarah. Jane, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. So
0: I want to start off digging into astronomy, into into your work that you've been doing for sure. over, what is it, over a decade now?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So you're famous for discovering four exoplanets. Famous. Too. I okay, had but, no uh-huh. idea what an exoplanet was <laughs> before I met you, but mm-hmm. what is an exoplanet? Why are they important? Why are they cool to mm-hmm. study?
1: And what does it take to find one? So exoplanets are uh, a special name for any planet that orbits a sun um, other than our own sun. You know, so orbiting a star other than our own sun, um, we didn't always know that there were such planets. Similarly to me, there has been a time in your life where humanity didn't know there were any planets. But like the students that I'm teaching right now, um, being born after 1995, when we detected the first exoplanet around a star other than the sun, um, they've never lived in a world where that's been the case. Wow. You know, um, so children now are raised in a world where, of course, there are planets around other stars, um, but that's a very recent discovery for human beings to even know that. Um, So, and not only are they um, around some stars, they seem to be around almost all stars, particularly in the Milky Way, where we've been looking for them in our own home galaxy. So I think that they're interesting unto themselves because clearly planets are a widespread phenomena of nature. But in terms of maybe why they are deeply compelling, not only to myself, but also members of the public um, is because they could potentially be sites for life hmm. and understanding life as a phenomena of nature too, is something which intrigues uh, almost everybody, I think. Um, and we think that if indeed planets are common, maybe life is common. And that's really something that could keep you going to work every day. I'll say.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sounds pretty important. Um, Is that how you would articulate why we study space in general and why it's important to study the universe?
1: I had a student ask me this question in lecture just on Friday, which was like, why do you think people are so interested in space? Why are people more interested in space than they are in like the deep sea or something? Mm. I was asking her, like, do you think that's true? Um, I think that there's a very human quality, which I, I guess I would just call curiosity, and it doesn't just exist in scientists or academics. Like it's just widely human, even um, from from childhood. Mm-hmm. So that compulsion to try to understand nature, I almost said to her, it could be as much philosophical as scientific. You know, like what defines the human experience? And to a certain extent, it's um, a experience that um, involves curiosity in, in <laughs> like the biggest possible scales. And so for that reason, I think it is compelling to people. There's a separate question then, Jane, which is, well, what kinds of questions should get prioritized, for example, through tax dollars? That's a separate question. Um, And why in particular NASA gets funded? I could like address that, you know, separately, but there's sort of a separate question, which is why are these questions compelling to people? And then why do we as a society prioritize some questions over others? And I'm not sure why people love space as much as they do, um, but they do, and um, I feel very grateful to be able to study outer space for my work, you know, and support myself <laughs> like that is truly um, a dream.
0: I mean, there's something glamorous about studying space too, you, Do you know, think? like astronauts and spaceships <laughs> and <laughs> discovering aliens, you know, but you saw,
1: I mean, you saw my daily life, Jane, you literally saw my daily life, like the day to day, the level of glamour was like medium to low. <laughs> um, but thank you for, for saying that it's glamorous. Um. I do feel like it's deeply compelling and exciting.
0: So did you grow up like watching sci-fi movies or being really interested in space? What What was
1: young Sarah like? Um, I was a really curious and sensitive kid. So like I remember in kindergarten asking other kids if they wanted to like go for a walk around the playground and like tell me about their day. <laughs> and that was when I was only five. Um, you know, so I've always wanted to understand other people, I've always felt like my own lived reality isn't representative of like the human experience, I guess, broadly, of course, i never would have put it in terms like that as a little girl. But I wanted to understand um, the world outside myself. And that included people and that included nature. In particular, I was really interested in the oceans, like I thought I might want to be a marine biologist as a little girl. And I remember like kind of um, doing little science experiments in my backyard. But I was always just as interested in the humanities I guess you would call them like reading fiction um, and poetry like as a young girl I got like the exact same <laughs> on both the SAT and the GRE I got the exact same score on like the verbal and math like down to the point so it always felt like um, I have been equally um, excited about the arts as I have been about understanding the world like in a technical way, uh, a technical and mathematic way. Young Sarah was so, you would have recognized her, Jane, like, you know, a young Sarah, um, in that she wanted to be close to others and understand them, um, and she was really curious. So
0: you went to college at UC Berkeley. I did. And you entered as a, was it Peace and Conflict Studies major? Yeah. That sounds fitting. with the, did, yeah. The understanding people and relating to one another.
1: I thought I might want to be a social worker. I mean, but it's also really hard to fully remember because I was so young. Like Mm -hmm. I I discovered astronomy pretty early on um, in college. So that um, idea of becoming a scientist has been formative to almost my whole adult life. But I do still remember like teenage Sarah was like, what should I do with my life? And I remember thinking like, maybe I should. I, I probably want to be of service to others like I probably want to be a therapist or a social worker or something or maybe I want to work for a nonprofit mm-hmm. but those ideas were very nebulous as they're going to be in the brain of like an 18 year old um, and part of the reason why I really liked um, Berkeley was because they had that peace and conflict studies major that I thought would be a really good match for me but It turns out I was passionate about other things.
0: I remember visiting Berkeley. That was one of my dream schools, actually. And I took a trip out to San Francisco. Um, It was like 2011 with my best friend. We went to Berkeley, and outside there was a little street fair going on, and there was a guy we met named Twiggy. Uh You might know him, (laughs) but he had these, like, long... Uh, I think there were dreads but he did like hair braiding Ooh. so we both got our hair braided and wrapped and Ooh. um
1: Jane the birthday yeah. experience <laughs> yeah
0: we got the whole thing <laughs> we even got um henna tattoos yes yeah so I'm curious to hear your meeting with astronomy
1: um I took uh I took astronomy um to fulfill what I thought at the time was a useless physical science breath requirement because I didn't think I was gonna pursue science. Um, and a lot of people took astronomy uh, and do take astronomy in college to fulfill that requirement. Is something I've since learned. It's really popular for that reason. I thought the class was interesting, but I didn't have a moment in which a transformation of a type occurred until it was maybe halfway through the class. It was really early in the morning. The class was at nine early for me, right, Jane? <laughs> and um, I remember I stumbled out of the dorms, went to class, and I was sort of like, um, you know, half awake. And the professor, he um, was using PowerPoint, and he was projecting, um, you know, big slides on an oversized screen. And in particular, he he started that lecture that day with an image. And he said, what do you think this is a picture of? And I'll I'll describe the image to you the way that I saw it at the time. It kind of looked like two cotton balls. um, And one cotton ball was kind of littler than the other one. And in my you know, 50% awake brain, I thought, I don't know, maybe they're stars. And he said, um, these are two galaxies. These are two, um, he used the word elliptical. These are two elliptical galaxies. You know, they're, they're in orbit around another, around one another. Um, and something happened in my mind. I had two sort of realizations at the same time, as much as any human being can fully appreciate like the, the magnitude of outer space, but like, you know, all the hairs on the back of my neck stood up and stuff. The first was that, um, Even the distance between the two nearest stars in that galaxy was like unfathomably big. The distance even between the earth and the sun is like unfathomably big. And that's such a tiny fraction of the distance between even the nearest star to the sun. And I thought, if even that tiny distance is unfathomable to me, how could I ever comprehend? Like there's hundreds of billions of stars in that galaxy. And even the smallest unit scale, is too big for me to hold in my brain. So the enormity of what was being communicated, I think, was um, suddenly um, felt really, um, I don't know, resonant um, in a way that I had only appreciated like intellectually or mentally before. Like, I know it's big, right? But big is just a word. Lots of things are big. Um, I hadn't fully appreciated like what big can mean. Mm -hmm. And then also the fact that these galaxies were orbiting a common center of mass. That meant that um, the same physical laws that um, dictate the moon orbiting the earth and the earth orbiting the sun, um, by that same rule, galaxies orbit each other. Like these laws apply like on every conceivable scale um, across the entire universe. And that was just magnificent too. And yet just having a realization like that is not the same thing as choosing to pursue it. And so I'll say that I had an experience which I saw borne out later in a lot of um, like surveys about why um, women in particular tend to pursue STEM careers or male peers who will say that they pursue like actually studying STEM, you know, for their major and PhD because they, they say um, it, they feel passionate about it or because they feel like they're good at it. Um, this is a young men again um, or because they feel like it will be um, like financially a good idea um, to pursue STEM. And in contrast, Many young women pursue STEM because someone important to them encouraged them to. Hmm. And that is what happened to me. So not only was I interested in it, I went and talked to the professor of the class, the TA for the class, and a counselor at the um, counseling center at Berkeley. And all three were like, this is is what you should do. Like, Hmm. you're very good at it. My professor and TA said, and um, yeah, my TA was like, you're my best student. You could do it. But it wasn't until going to the counselor at Letters and Science that, you know, I was tearful. I was 18 and um, confused about what I should do. And I thought, what if I'm not smart enough? What, there's so much math and there's so much science. And she said, well, why don't you tell me what it feels like to study astronomy? So I described to her, like, how I was excited to do my homework. Um, there weren't, like, smartphones at the time. So I was, like, printing out star charts and taking them outside the dorm to look up. Wow. And she said, that's what it feels like when you find the thing you should try to do. And so that was, if not for those three people and the way that they responded, that also could have gone a very different direction. So it was not only that, you know, awakening moment where I was like, wow, outer space is so wonderful. I'm so interested in it. It was also that um, someone important to me encouraged me to mm. and said, you know, you could if you wanted. I've gotten to be on the other side of that conversation now many times, Jane, Too. Mm. um, You know, I'm so interested in it. Do you think I could do it?
0: Mm. You know,
1: and I get to be on the other side now of like, um, let's talk about what that might look like. How do you feel when you think about outer space? You know, that conversation will be different depending on every individual student who's sort of like, I think I really like outer space. And I'll say like, you know, tell me what you like about it. Or um, how did you do in math in high school? Mm. You know, I'll often ask things like that. I'll encourage them to remember that this is a period of exploration for them. I'm talking about undergrads, you know. Mm -hmm where I'll say, maybe you can give it a try. Why don't you try taking calculus next semester? Um, Be taking other things too, see how it goes. Um, To sort of see like, go on little duckling into the (laughs) pond and like see how you like it. And if it turns out you don't like it, you're no worse for wear. Yeah, see if you (laughs) float, you can always like come back onto land, you know.
0: (laughs) So around the time that you got interested in astronomy, was that also when you sort of decided you wanted to become a professor?
1: Um, I didn't think I would ever become a professor because I didn't think I would be smart enough. But I thought um, maybe I could work at like a planetarium or I I wasn't sure what I conceivably could do. I thought maybe um, if I get into graduate school, I'll be able to revisit it. But it's hard to fully express to you like um, how little confidence I had Mm -hmm. in my ability Um, that took a really long time to build that muscle, um, Mm -hmm. to have that feeling of confidence. But I remember thinking, maybe I could get a job doing something in astronomy. I didn't think to myself, maybe eventually I'll interview for a faculty job in this exact department. (gasps) Wow!
0: That must have (laughs) felt so surreal. It was, yeah. So you met an astronomy professor at Berkeley Mm -hmm. um, who ended up making a lasting impact on your life and your career in -hmm. many ways. Um, Can you talk about Jeffrey Marcy, who he was to the world and who he was to you when you first met him?
1: Yeah, I can talk about that. Um, So I met him um, two years after I took that intro to astronomy class. Um, So that whole next year was taking prereqs. He was the professor for the second semester of um, introduction to astrophysics for majors. So he was a professor in the class I was taking. I will describe the experience as I saw it at that time. As a very young woman, I didn't understand the world at large, but also like to ha- be able to speak coherently or have an understanding about the power dynamics within academia and within the world is something that I didn't um, I didn't have that understanding at the time. So I thought um, it was really wonderful that this professor was taking an interest in me. I'll say too for for folks who haven't necessarily had that much experience with academia. Um, It is almost based on this really old-timey model of like apprenticeship, like basically your ability to ascend uh, the ladder to become an academic yourself depends on people who are established recognizing your talent and promoting you. So the idea that um, somebody as famous as that would take an interest in me, um, that he said I was talented. It's hard to describe at the time, how meaningful that was, how important it was, especially when my identity was just beginning to crystallize around the fact that this might be real, that I really could do it, that I had gotten, like, an A in intro to astrophysics, you know, and that I really was seeming to, like, have the ability to do it. I'll tell you a story that I think um, describes a lot of what that lived reality was like. So I have a, I had and have a really close friend who was there with me at the time, um, Vaishali. her name um and she ultimately went on to get a phd too at the time you know we were just baby undergrads we worked on that website together the um you know how to teach science to high schoolers website we were both in this intro to astrophysics class there was definitely an escalation in uh jeff's interest in me so it started with just like let's go out to coffee let's talk about your future and then um, he started talking about other things, relationships he'd had. It started getting sexual, the things that he would talk about. Um, and then there was a day that he like actually touched me, like touched my body, um, which was like clearly an escalation. Like I could no longer pretend that he just was looking out for me. Um, and I remember having a conversation with Vaishali after that happened. And she and I – we're trying with our really limited resources and our really limited perspective to figure out what to do. And I remember saying to her, you know, I'm going to have to confront him, basically. I'm going to have to say, like, never do that again. You know, and, I, and I'm not interested. And I remember saying to her, he might not write me a letter of recommendation anymore by Shally, but you should still get a letter from him. Because I remember even at the time thinking, like, I might not make it, but you, you could still make it. Which was so... That's so sad. The reason why I'm still here in astronomy is because a miracle basically occurred. He stopped um, with his behavior toward me, like his inappropriate behavior toward me. It seemed miraculous at the time, like magic had happened. What I learned later is that he was separately confronted by um, another... Graduate student, I think, or a graduate student, or maybe a faculty member in the department, because he he had been harassing multiple students and undergraduates. So he was confronted separately by someone who had more power than me, and as a result, he did what he did, which was back off for a while. So I never had to confront him, which meant that I never had to um, have what I see now would have been like really negative repercussions of doing that, and certainly he wouldn't have promoted me anymore, even if I got. The highest grade in his class that would have gone away almost certainly Mm -hmm. and I will say that um I never wanted to be in the field of exoplanets because that was his field so a lot of the time that he was talking about you know when we would be meeting he would be sharing with me things that would make me feel like we were peers you know so for example like um oh Sarah we've like just discovered this planet um it's like one of the smallest ones you know like um planets were still like relatively rare back then um (laughs) we think it's like the mass of earth and I felt like so cool, like part of the end crowd. Um, And yet the research I was doing at the time was like galaxies. And when I started graduate school at Harvard, um, the professor who ultimately ended up being my PhD advisor was like, "Um, you know, sir, I have this amazing project. I kind of couldn't, I, I, thought it was amazing but i remember thinking like it's okay like jeff works in like a different part of exoplanets. <laughs> like this will be okay <laughs> but i still remember the professor the person who was my phd advisor saying um you know and maybe on this project we could work with jeff marcy and i just like mm. kind of froze and had like a like <gasps> oh god you know um mm-hmm. and he could tell that something was wrong but um he didn't really ask more about it and just kind of like dropped it and i've I just like carried that for a real long time and still carry it. I think what was most difficult about it is that, um, I mean, not only was it like a, a violation and it's a betrayal, like stuff like that, That, but also there was a breaking sensation of mm-hmm. this new identity that I had. Like if this guy thought I was talented, maybe I really could make it, you know, maybe I really could be an astronomer. And then um, when I realized it was something else altogether, I thought like, was it all a lie? Hmm. So, um, my nightmare, Jane. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy.
0: I can only imagine how, how confused you must have felt too. Of, you know, you were so excited about this new field, and and yeah. suddenly being recognized by someone in the top of the field, and then for it to turn into the whole thing turned sour.
1: I know. <laughs> and he has like a yet he had, he had a very strong reputation for being like very pro women in astronomy, yeah. and. Uh, one of the first times that he engaged me outside of the classroom was that he attended a rally that I was um, on campus working on. I was part of an activism group on campus, like, um, which was related to the prevention of sexual violence and addressing it on college campuses. And he, like, came to that rally, mm-hmm. and he wrote to me about it. He emailed me about it um, and was like, you should, you should call me at my house to, like, talk about it. Oh. Um, and that was the first time that I was like, What? Um hmm. so that Catchy. was also that was also really confusing because that's also really contradictory messaging which mm-hmm. is like I'm a professor and I go to these rallies on campus I really care mm. about um making the world a safe place.
0: Yeah, um, it's almost like he's signaling yeah, like th- I'm safe. Mhm. Give me a break. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And at one point you also did decide to come out and speak about this story publicly. That's true. I mean, that must have been a very difficult decision how mm-hmm. how did you think about that
1: um that was not a decision that was made overnight that process was really long for a long time i didn't even know that he was harassing other students or had been for like decades before he was even at berkeley when he was a professor at san francisco state he'd been harassing students like so much of it was documented too um so you know 5 or so years went by um until i even learned that he harassed other people and like many mm-hmm. other people um, and I didn't initiate that Title IX complaint. Um, it was initiated by a number of other people, not only students whom he'd harassed, but people who'd seen uh, him harassing students, um, faculty, for example, um, graduate students who had seen shit go down. So that the ball rolling wasn't pushed by me. Instead, it was sort of like, do you want, will you be the complainant basically in this case among others? Um, so that was a decision that I made like early on as a postdoc. Um, so now like what, six or seven years have gone by between like the time that, you know, the harassment took place. Then I got, went and got my PhD. I learned that he had been harassing other people. Then there was like a, okay, this really is going to happen. We're going to make a complaint to the UC Berkeley title nine office, um, which is a piece of, uh, us civil rights legislation for, if folks don't know about that, about, um, how um, it's illegal to discriminate on the basis of gender, which is interpreted as, um, you know, not um, sexually assaulting or harassing women in academic spaces too. So um, I then made a decision to be a complainant. That was the first in several decisions. So there's the decision to be a complainant, the decision to be a, should I be a named complainant? And then the decision to use my real name in the media at all. Those were all separate decisions. Mm -hmm. And, I came to them separately. Harshly, I agreed to be a complainant because um, I was able. So not all of the people whom Jeff harassed or assaulted are like out and use their real names. But there was a lot of um, discussion among us about who's going to be a part of this. And I remember thinking like, what happened to me wasn't really that bad. And on the spectrum of things like compared to shit he pulled with other people and things he did, it wasn't that bad. But I remember thinking, I mean, that bad, Jane, I'm making your quotes, like, I really thought that to myself at the time, like, uh, by the same token, I thought, I think it's because it wasn't, quote unquote, that bad that I am able to do this. The people who were really, really traumatized by what happened, uh, of course, it depends on each individual person, but many of them opted out. And so I remember thinking, it could be that this is my responsibility to do this. Um, if others cannot, I should, because I can, because I'm able to, and also, um, I don't want to have what happened to me to happen to anybody else. And I remembered what that person did for me. So at this point, I had learned why he had stopped; that he was confronted by another person. And I thought, I have an opportunity here. I can be the person I needed then. And so that motivated me to be a complainant, which meant. Um, you know, talking with the UC Berkeley title IX office, this is all like pre me too. Um, also. So there was like the discussion about sexual harassment wasn't, um, quite as widespread as like it is now. And then Jane, I went to the, um, I was at the university of Washington. I went to their like ombudsperson. So basically I, I went and talked like the whole thing through. I also talked with my supervisor at the university of Washington. Like I strategized, like, what should I do? And, um, in talking with the ombudsperson, who's like the um, uh, the person who occupies the interface between like students and the university, I didn't have an issue with the University of Washington, but I went to this person to say, what can I expect? Like if I'm a complainant in a Title IX case, what can I expect? How is this going to play out? How's it going to look? Will people know my real name if I use my real name, if I'm a named complainant? Um, and I talked about what the consequences would be. And I remember that woman at the University of Washington said, even if you're not a named complainant. If you are a complainant, he'll probably know who you are. So that's something to consider in your decision making. Um, Because I remember thinking too, if I'm not a named complainant, maybe he won't know. And I won't have to grapple with like this incredible feeling of guilt that I had too, because he had also materially helped me in addition to harming me. And um, so at that time, I made the decision like, okay, I'm going to be a complainant. Um, he's going to know that it's me, but that doesn't mean everybody in the world will. I knew, too, that eventually, because Berkeley is a public institution, like a Freedom of Information Act request could turn up those documents. Um, I was making peace with, like, this eventually could come out. Um, my name won't be on it. I decided to not be a named complainant. So then um, the reason why I used my real name is because Berkeley didn't do shit. Um, they, the Title IX office did the investigation. They concluded that harassment had occurred. And that it was a pattern. And then they were like, basically, don't do it again to him. Wow. Just don't do it again. Yeah. Um, Which is, yeah, it's super fucked up. But I mean, that's, it couldn't have been otherwise because the world would be different. Like, you know, like there's a reason why he got to that point after harassing so many students so many times. Like Mm -hmm. there wasn't the incentive to do the right thing. Just keep it quiet. Don't do it again. Um, That's when like the grieving really began of, what the fuck happened here? If this university isn't motivated to protect me, what is this university here for? What is this? What, what am I a part of? Like, what is this thing that I'm a part of? Um, It's more complicated than I imagined. And it's not as simple. And it's not as um, good. You know, just good and like about, you know, pursuit of knowledge, (laughs) like there's something else really fucked up happening here, which has to do with like power structures and abuses of power even then i wasn't involved with like seeking out the media there was a concerted effort so at this point there's like a group of people who were involved complainants faculty supportive faculty who knew about what had happened at this point my own phd advisor knew like and uh, lots of people in my group like i had come out kind of individually to people like this happened to me and um one of those supportive faculty reached out to a reporter at buzzfeed about it Um, So that was a separate decision, which is, will I talk to the BuzzFeed reporter? I'll say, too, there was, like, female faculty whom he'd harassed. So there was also, like, a decision among, like, so many people at different career stages, who's going to talk to the BuzzFeed reporter? And if they do, who will use their real name? And um, that was a discussion that happened um, behind the scenes, a lot of it on Facebook, you know, um, Mm -hmm. in in groups. And I decided I'm going to use my real name. Part of the reason why I decided was because um, I wanted to show that I wasn't afraid. And I thought, if I use my real name, other people will know that they don't need to be afraid. That was a really big piece of it. And also I thought, I'm relatively safe now. Um, I knew that I was protected by, um, I had like relative protection from more senior members in the field. And also, Jane, I just thought, I've basically spent 10 years creating this reputation for myself in the field of astronomy as someone who is incredibly careful and incredibly honest. You know, I'm really um, scientifically rigorous. My word can be trusted. I'm a a really um, thoughtful person and a thoughtful colleague. And I was like, I have to spend all of those chips now, Hmm. you know, so that um, if this is helpful people won't be just like oh this is a bunch of students they'll be like this was sarah i know sarah i've interacted with her that's not fair that shouldn't have happened to her i remember reading a lot of literature on like the in various activist causes like what what causes people's mind to change and often it's like because it happened to someone they know and i remember thinking like this is a really important tool
0: from there it kind of snowballed right and you sort of became this symbol for other women that you know it's not okay for this kind of shit to happen in academia or otherwise and mm-hmm. what what kind of feedback did you get
1: um mixed um from many people it was like you know thank you a lot of people didn't know um so there was like different levels of responses from um from almost like different levels of seniority. Um, I remember some faculty cried, like um, more senior faculty who were like tenured were like, oh my God, I can't believe this has been happening. I can't believe it and um, that would be hard to see. Some faculty responded with anger um, at Jeff. Um, Some people responded with anger at me. Um, Lots of people had feelings of like gratitude you know that they were expressing like thank you so much for doing this or um that also happened to me either from jeff or either from jeff or somebody else so like um when it when something hits like a painful resonant frequency for people like there's so many different ways of reacting Mm -hmm. and i do remember um at a professional astronomy conference i was sitting uh, by myself kind of like in a, um, a patio uh and it was the evening so the conference was like nominally over and uh colleague came up to me and was like angry um and was basically like is this what you wanted to happen is this what you wanted like so many people people lost their jobs like um people who didn't do anything wrong like people who had been working in jeff's group um and are you sure that that really happened like isn't it just that people have it out for him this guy he had this idea he was like well, such and such and so and so like these other faculty, they really have it out for him. And isn't that what happened? And I was like, they didn't take Jeff Mercy's hand and put it on my body. Jeff Mercy did that. They didn't do that. And also, I was like, we're not taking their word. There was a Title IX investigation that concluded that harassment took place. I don't know what you're talking about, basically. Um, So like that sort of like, well, this is just a smear job. And I was like, by whom? And also, he was like, you know, did you get what you wanted? And I was like, no, I didn't get my 10 first choices. My first choice would have been that he never harassed me. All, all of my next choices would have been that the university would have done the right thing in the first place, like 20 years ago. Then I wish it had done the right thing 19 years ago. Then I wish it had done the right thing 18 years ago. You know? No, I didn't get my first choice. Nobody got their first choice. But um, I don't know. I had a lot of really great therapy too. Mm. So my ability to manage the situation, to make the choices that I made, to make choices which were commensurate with my values, but also commensurate with the resources that I had to give emotionally and otherwise. All of that was um, done piece by piece with a lot of you're such a
0: badass. I mean, you be- you became this public figure and just kind of, like, came out with it because you needed to. Like, most people who are public figures like that, you know, they have a PR team and a lawyer yeah. and all that. <laughs> That's and, true. And, you know, you, like, you had your support system, but it was very much like Sarah Ballard as an individual coming out into the world. So academia is fucked up.
1: <laughs> In many ways. In many In ways, ways, sure. In many
0: ways. Why did you choose to stay?
1: Yeah, like, is it worth saving? Yeah. You know, um, well, I've always, first of all, felt like as much as the shittiness of academia is real, it can deplete what feels like a well that I have of passion for the subject and interest in the subject. But um, a ground spring feeds that well. I don't know what it is about me that really loves outer space, but eventually the well will fill again. Um, so I, I, it's not necessarily that way for everybody. And I know people who are like, I never want to think about astronomy again. Um, Mm -hmm. but I still love outer space. And I also thought to myself, it doesn't have to be this way. It can be different. And especially like the more I've, I've saw from my own lived experience, the more power that I had, the more I was able to do to protect other people. I know many people think it's not salvageable. I struggle with that sometimes too. At the end of the day, I do think it's solvable. If I can be a professor who does a good job, if I do a good job advising students, then they won't have the experience I had. They'll have a very different experience, um, and that's really rewarding and wonderful. Um, and now I'm the professor teaching that like intro to astronomy for non majors <gasps> yes. class. You know, advising PhD students and undergrads, and um, working on science policy and So that feels really rewarding.
0: I've always thought there's something like truly sacred about a university, you know, where... Like, you could spend all day just thinking about exactly what you're passionate about. Like, I got to do a master's degree and write <laughs> a thesis about ACORN. Um, like, yes! who, who else hell? is going to pay me to do that? I mean, of course, there's, like, all this drama and, like, administration and, like, yes. politics that go on. But at the end of the yeah. day, like, people who stay are the ones who really care about pushing knowledge to the next level, like, discovering the new thing or, or just rethinking the way the world works. And I think that's so special.
1: Thank you, Jane. I really like also just teaching science in a purple state right now, mm. like in the US. Um, there's also, it's a very meaningful to me because um, I really think that's sacred too, that experience of um, often being um, maybe the last point at which many um, Americans who go to college um, are going to interface with science the way that it's um, conducted you know, by by scientists. And um, I want not only to talk about the universe, I also want to have conversations that feel really important about like, how do you know what you know? How do you make decisions? Like, how does evidence bear upon your understanding of the world? And I also feel like that's a cool thing to be talking about right now. That's an important part of my job that doesn't necessarily 100% have to do with exoplanets.
0: Um, okay, so I do want to touch on your journey to becoming a professor. Okay. What was the process like for you? I know it was a bit of an adventure and um, had, That's true. you know, many steps to the process, but can you describe... Um, just what that process looks like today, if you want to become a professor, what's expected of you, and um, maybe some of the things that are not listed on the job description.
1: Yeah, Um, so I know that it varies, first of all, Um, and the path for different types of academics, I can't speak to fully, although I know that you need to attain the highest level of training that we have this word for, which is PhD, you know, um, so often to join the community of scientists, I'll say, um, and to be like an academic scientist, whether you're working for the government, like for NASA, or whether you're working in a university, it means um, conducting a truly novel and independent piece of research, which is your own. Um, And that is something you do in grad school. So you don't have necessarily the skills to start Doing that until you finish college like college is about like learning that skill set how would you even start how would you even try to understand what's going on in the natural world and then you build upon those skills um, and actually answer an unanswered question um how that looks the path to the phd can really vary and i know that it varies even from like the u.s um phd in astronomy versus the one that's like the style in europe like for example um there's like a really uh, some variance in the path, but generally speaking, it's about like producing a new piece of knowledge. You're advised at that point by often one person, like nominally advised. So for example, I am advising like three PhD students now who ultimately will have crafted a new piece of like a body of knowledge. They're trying to answer like a big question. They'll be the first author, you know, and they'll have to defend it to their peers and professors. Like, with um, you know, pointed uh, questions and thoughtful questions like, what about this? What about this? Like, how do you know about this? You also are building the ability to um, argue your evidence and describe, um, be able to reproduce what you did, um, which is a huge piece of just the scientific endeavor is I did it this way and got this result. I'm going to describe exactly how it happened so that you could do it too if you wanted and confirm it. Um, so you also need to be able to explain yourself. At the same time, you're getting trained in giving talks. Um, You're getting trained in how to teach and also um, how to communicate to the public. If you decide to be a scientist, um, getting involved in outreach is also something I really encourage students to do. And then once you get your PhD, it's rare to go straight from there to being a professor. Um, Once you have your PhD and you can kind of establish an independent research program, it depends on the field, but there's not an equivalent number to PhDs as there are professor jobs. But people do so much different meaningful work with a PhD and like contribute in deeply meaningful ways. And I thought about doing the same thing myself. Remember, Jane, when I was like, maybe I should do something else.
0: I <laughs> know yeah. oh, you called it, you know, going to industry. Industry. I don't even know what it means. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I heard that, I was like, what industry, Sarah?
1: <laughs> it, what indeed, Jane? <laughs> but, yeah. People go into so many different fields, mostly because um, you're, you're, what I understand, like readily employable. Um, I don't know very many people who have the bachelor's degree in astronomy or the PhD in astronomy who are unemployed. Mm. Like you, you mostly end up working for um, a company that makes use of your skill, answering questions with big data sets, you know, um, identifying patterns when there's a lot of noise in the data, um, making predictive models or um, things like teaching. Right. Or like crafting science policy. So even if you don't necessarily um, have uh, deep knowledge, like across all different kinds of science, you can still like work for a representative, you know, as an aide, for example, or work in like um, for the National Science Foundation or something like that, um, crafting scientific policy on like a broader level. So there's a number of paths that people take. professor's is just one of them. If you want to pursue professor, then there's a period of time where you have your independent research program. So now you have your PhD, you're going to strike out on your own. You've like exited the umbrella in the safe wing of like your PhD advisor. And now you're going to like do your own thing. Um, There's a number of different ways that people do that. And then often it feels like you're running around all the time, like trying to get lift off, like into professor mode, like for yourself. (laughs) Um, And that process like goes on for a really long time it's very weird in that there's not just like constant applications and interviews there's like one season of applications per year one season of interviews with the understanding that you'll start at the same time so at the same time that I had my independent research program as a postdoctoral fellow I was also like interviewing for faculty jobs like every spring honing my ability to interview um, and also developing a vision for myself um, of like what are the big questions I want to answer um, in my life? Like, what are the questions I want to answer in like five or 10 years? And that's hard to do because it involves not only having the skills and then being able to do research when given a problem. It also means like you have a concept, a concept of the field as a whole, which is like, what are the unanswered questions? What are the unanswered questions, which are, which you can almost answer today? Um, the, uh, on like the cutting edge. Um, so answerable, in theory, and then also answerable, like, in practice, where you're like, okay, with this, with such and such telescope, I could answer this. Or there's, like, some underlying question, there's a pattern I want to understand, I can approach it these three ways, it would take such and such amount of time, I would need this much money, you know, Um, and I could answer this question and this question. Um, And the ability to do that takes a really long time. My first, like, idea um, that I had for, like, a purely novel research project, I didn't have in my PhD. I had it, like, the second second year of being a postdoc you know and now I'm writing NASA or NSF proposals like you know today this afternoon um and I'm like I have four ideas one two three four they're gonna go like this this is how much time they'll take this is how they're exploring these different things that are linked together you know um and so it becomes more of like a management role in a way that probably sounds really familiar Mm -hmm. right like um how do you create a vision well in order to understand what a reasonable vision would be you have to be a part of it for a really long time, like at different levels to see like, well, what's doable? What's possible?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so in that way, it probably resembles a lot of fields. It's
0: almost like you're running a startup. You're doing the operations, you're doing the finance and budget. Yes. You're setting the product and project vision and goals and all of that. And then you have to, oh you know, once you receive the grant, you hire your team and you execute. Yep. Wow. It
1: really does sound like a startup too, because it's like, um, if you just give me X amount of money invested, in me, yes. this is gonna pay dividends. Like, yeah. <laughs> and I have to have like a brand. Yeah. You know, where I'm like, if you the Ballard brand is such and such, if you <laughs> hire me, you're gonna get this. <laughs> yeah,
0: which you do have quite an online presence.
1: Yes. Um, I used to be a lot more active on Twitter. Um, I was passionate about it, but also, um, I was trying to get a job. Mm, you know, sure. and that. I've had to reallocate my time.
0: I remember when you got your acceptance, you know, yeah. package, letter. Yeah. We had a little cocktail party. This whiskey that you'd been saving for years, yeah. it was, was it in a globe? Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: I got it in, in Scotland. That was scotch from Scotland. Oh, you know, yes. Like scotch whiskey. Um, and I bought it, um, gosh, 2015, I think, around then. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I thought to myself, I'm going to open this when I know one way or the other, whether I'm going to be a professor. So I also might not be a professor. And then when I know for sure, I'll open it then but one way or the other it'll get drank when this question gets answered.
0: And it got drank. It,
1: <laughs> it did. Yeah, you were there with me for a lot of it, Jane. I also had parties when I was just like, okay, I submitted an application yes. for like, this place I really I want, that. you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, I remember we were all in the kitchen crowding around you as you like hit the button.
1: That's very true. I did. Yeah, um that is not a job I ended up getting, but I got another one. Yeah, you got um, another one. Yeah. Oh my gosh, but Thank you for being there with me to commemorate that.
0: I was honored. <laughs> so, are you are you living your dream?
1: Yeah, I'm living my dream. Um, I can highly recommend it. Um, because I feel like I've been given this huge gift to have a really meaningful life. Hmm. Um, it's a wonderful thing. Like, for example, the first semester that I was teaching. I remember um, I was having a, a Skype conversation um, with an academic at McGill um, who was working on, like, social movements, basically. Or She she was asking me questions about, like, why had I made the decisions I've made about, like, being a complainant in a sexual harassment case. And I was answering questions for her. And then I had, said, I have to go. I have office hours. Um, and I went to uh, open the door. And there was four young women there sitting on the in the hall like, outside my office, and I opened the door, and they, like, all looked up, and um, I felt like I was two people at the same time. I I was opening the door, but at the same time, I was them, too, and walking through the door. That's a really meaningful thing to feel like you can really be there for your younger self, you know, which is, like, my whole adult life, I've wanted this dream. Um, to have achieved it is, like, so tasty, mm. um, and then also to feel like I have a fully, like, Integrated story. That feels like that's a huge gift of like, wow, I really get to be there for myself as I once was. I can make it different in a way that she would have felt safe. Hmm.
0: Um, I am imagining your documentary because that's <laughs> going to be a thing one day. This is like the perfect final scene of you opening <laughs> your office door and for yeah, yeah, Sarah Ballard. Yeah. yeah,
1: and I could be like, come in, come in. Yes. You know. Oh. And I love the. Uh, Part of the job where I get to think about outer space. You know, I really do get to do that. Um I really treasure people who knew me before the dream was gonna be real, you know. Um and I remember when I thought maybe I wouldn't get a faculty job, um, talking with my mom and saying, like, if I'm not an astronomer, like who am I? I feel um, a little sad because, like, my whole adult life has been striving toward the goal. If I end up doing something else, who will I be? And she was like, "You'd be the same, Sarah. Hmm. You know, like before there was astronomy. I know who you are. Hmm. You know." But it is like a wonderful thing that I didn't have to make that choice. It rules, Jane. Yes, <laughs> live it up. It I is love awesome. It. Yeah, it's awesome.
0: You are truly an inspiration.
1: Mm -hmm. I still feel like other parts of my life are like brambles and like feral and like wild and I don't yet know what's there. Mm -hmm. But like my professional life, at least I'm like, I know this. I know just how to tend it. And it's like, you know, beautiful fruit trees and there's like so much (laughs) produce from it. But um, it doesn't mean that every part of life is that way. Mm.
0: It helps though, having one big area of your life taking care of. I think so. Yeah. Oh, this has been perfect, Sarah. Thank you so much for your time.
1: You're so, so welcome, Jane.
0: You're a busy, worldly professor now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I will always make time for my granite queens.
0: Another big thank you to Sarah for sharing her story and kicking off this podcast. If you'd like to follow Sarah on Twitter, you can find her at hubba hubble. That's H-U-B-B-A-H-U-B-B-L-E. And to see pictures of her cool hairstyles over the years, be sure to follow the show on Instagram at insideoutwithjane. And that closes out our first episode. What did you think? If you enjoyed this, please give the podcast a rating and review. Even better, can you think of one friend who would benefit from listening to this? Text them the link. Thank you again so much for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe for new episodes, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday.